So being the first Sunday of the month, it's uh, time to um, engage together in a shared contemplation on the teachings that are uh, presented uh, on our the uh, calendar that we put out, the teachings that uh, this month, this year, are given by Ajahn Shah and what is quoted there is a verse which says some of us practice because we want something in exchange. We want to be reborn in a different state of being. We're trying to attain something. But this is not how the Buddha taught. So Ajahn uh, is trying to point us in the right direction, he suggests that that this uh, effort that is sometimes made in practice to be trying to attain something, what he says quite directly, this is not how the Buddha taught, and trying to get reborn into another state of being, and trying to strike a bargain with reality, and uh, you do this and then I get that. We practice wanting something in exchange. And <clears throat> Anjan Shah is, is highlighting this as a mistaken view, as a mistaken attitude. Now when you, somebody first reads this, and they, uh, you think, well, how does that compare with what you might have read in the scriptures? Yeah. It seems like the Buddha did talk about trying to attain things. Strive on with diligence and and making right effort. And and then in the Eightfold Path where the Buddha talks very explicitly about the, the four right efforts. The effort to remove already arisen unwholesome states of mind. The effort to avoid the arising of as yet unarisen unwholesome states of mind. The effort to maintain already arisen wholesome states of mind and the effort to, to give rise to as yet unarisen wholesome states of mind. And we're encouraged to familiarize ourselves with these kinds of effort. That we're supposed to make this effort. And so what is this that Ajahn Chah is doing saying that you're not supposed to practice to attain anything? It seemed like the Buddha and the great teachers are talking about attaining enlightenment. Well, it's um, it's a very important point. It's very important to understand when we listen or we read spiritual teachings, all spiritual teachings, that we're able to discern where the teacher is pointing to the spirit of the teachings. Is something that you might have heard me or other teachers talk about. It's a, the difference between the form and the spirit. And, and if we don't get it right, uh, 
then, well, we can get it very wrong. If we don't get it right, we can get very confused. And, and often this happens in religion where, you know, the teacher was pointing to the spirit of something, but then if you grasp it, if your consciousness is defined by materialistic views, then you cling to it. This is what people do. We try to make ourselves secure by clinging. We turn the religious teachings into a thing and we cling to it. And it's actually misusing the teachings. You know, the teacher is pointing to the spirit of something and we turn it into an idea, a form, a convention that we cling to to make ourselves feel secure. Religious wars are usually about this. People basically got the wrong end of the stick. This is not, often not what the teacher was pointing to. So in this case, the apparent conflict that some might feel is saying, Ajahn Chah is saying that the Buddha said, don't try to attain anything. Trying to attain anything is not what the Buddha taught. Well, But what he's pointing to is that the basic underlying principle that if we are lost in any sort of desire, then it becomes an obstruction. Even the desire to become free from suffering, even the desire to realize compassion, even the desire to become wise, those motivations, although ostensibly wholesome, and in accordance with the Buddha's teachings, if we don't really understand them properly, if we don't cling, if we cling to them, then they become an obstruction. And since most of us do come to the spiritual teachings with very materialistic views, you know, we hear these wonderful teachings and they inspire us and give us hope, and we have this habit of clinging. We cling to them and. And then we, in fact, create obstructions. And so the teacher comes out with things like this. So the Buddha wasn't telling you to attain anything. So what he's saying is right. But what the Buddha was saying is also right. Both things are right. This is something that uh, is worth contemplating um, carefully in our life. Whenever we are feeling frustrated or confused or we misunderstand something, if we don't educate our perceptions we don't train our views skillfully then we can create a lot of havoc for ourselves and for others social conventions if we don't pay attention to the forms adequately we can make a problem out of them and people come sometimes come to places like this they come to the monastery and and they see us bowing to this graven image up here. And they think that, you know, we're doing, projecting all our power out onto this idol and that it's going to make us weak. When, in fact, as far as we're concerned, that image is like a mirror. It mirrors a potential that we have. And, And lowering ourselves in front of that, which reflects our ability to live wisely and compactly, actually strengthens our connection with those potential within ourselves. Mirrors are very good. I mean, I remember once I was on retreat up in Scotland and I got a tick in my eye. And uh, I was on my own on retreat up there. And I wonder why my eyelid was so itchy and rubbing away and rubbing away and it was getting worse every day. And 
And then having glasses on was cause a bit tricky to actually <laughs> get in there. And so I managed to somehow eventually, I don't know how I did it, but eventually I used the mirror to find and there was actually a tick right on the edge of my eyelid. And, and extracting that tick without a mirror would have been very tricky. Or perhaps uh, also similarly the example of uh, a relationship with a, a psychotherapist, that somebody who's carrying uh, some early life wounding which didn't receive the appropriate attention at that stage of life and, and they're feeling obstructed as a result and they need some help and they can try however hard to solve their problems but for whatever reason that wounding wasn't dealt with as it perhaps could have been at that stage and they go to see a therapist and for a while they project onto the therapist their ability until the therapist mirrors it back and hopefully eventually if it's a good therapist and successful therapy you learn what you need to learn and letting go happens and and without a good therapist or without a mirror uh, we wouldn't have achieved that and so we have these religious forms like bowing down to an image of the Buddha or in the monastery we have the tradition of bowing down to those who are senior to us showing respect for hierarchy again people will visit a monastery like this and and come across this hierarchy thing and if they don't really understand it then they can dismiss it they misunderstand it and misappreciate it and uh, I was hearing recently some young fellow who passed through the monastery here um, saw all this hierarchy business, got very upset and left and thought that it was uh, really not a good thing at all and it turned out that he was feeling like his creative and innovative ideas were not being valued and he was 20 and, and uh, he wanted his, his creative suggestions to be valued and, and well it's a pity he left before we had the conversation because it would have been quite helpful to point out that your ideas are valued, but not valued in the same way. Uh, to value the ideas of a 20-year-old the same as you would value the ideas of a 60-year-old you know, could be called naive. I mean, it's like saying that uh, an oak tree is as, as valuable as a sapling that's like eight inches tall. I mean, they're both valued, but they're valued in different ways. You know, a full, mature oak tree is able to provide protection and, and a habitat for all sorts of beings that an eight-inch sapling doesn't have. And so hierarchy, of course, can be abusive and misused, of course, as with any structure. But if we don't inspect the forms and understand the spirit behind them, then we can get it wrong, very wrong. And it was... Uh, an incident a year or so ago in His Holiness the Dalai Lama visited New Zealand and um, where a, a chieftain or a dignitary uh, visits New Zealand, the, the, uh, the Maori folk come out and they, they do this ritual they, they call a challenge. And uh, they go through this thing where you've probably seen them when they play rugby and uh, when when Scotland lost playing the All Blacks recently, they, they, <laughs> they do this challenge where they stick their tongue out and look pretty wild and 
aggressive, and then they come forward and they put down the spear in the land between you and them. And, and then the visiting dignitary is supposed to come forward and pick up the spear. And if you don't, that means you're at war. And so when they, uh, they did this with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, they didn't look into the forms that Buddhist monks have. You know, we're not allowed to pick up killing weapons. We don't do that. We don't pick up killing weapons. And so there was a little diplomatic issue there because His Holiness didn't pick up the spear. And, of course, the, the Maoris, you know, they didn't want to go to war with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I mean, everybody other than a few uninformed Chinese loved the Dalai Lama. In fact, I read today that he's even going to Glastonbury this year. Uh, every, everybody wants to hear the Dalai Lama. And the Maoris weren't, as I said, intent on going to war, but there was a miscommunication there. The forms are the forms, but if you don't understand them properly, you know, we can get them wrong. We can get them seriously wrong. And so in reading religious teachings, like you read the scriptures and the Buddha says there's these four right efforts that you should become familiar with and one of the last things he said before he died was strive on with diligence and, and you can read all these scriptures and if we're not really discerning then we can misread them. We can get the words and we can get perhaps some of the meaning with our heads but that doesn't mean to say we know what the Buddha is talking about. So it's uh, wise to heed the words of caution from our teachers when they, they warn us to, just because we understand something conceptually doesn't mean to say we really understand it. And, and the, uh, the idea that we have, for instance, as I mentioned just a minute ago, that uh, we should value the opinions of a 20-year-old the same as we value the tried and tested opinions of a 60-year-old, well, that, that's uninformed. You know, something we want to stop and think about. You know, why do we have that? I mean, I, would, I personally consider it completely upside down that that's the way our society is. So you want to stop and think about why is it that way? Well, it seems to me that we have these values these days. Is Egalitarianism is, is the particular form of wrong view that's popular these days and and also young people are more beautiful you know, why would you why would you value some old ugly fuddy duddy and that's the truth isn't it that's you know society materialistic society you know, that's devoid of insight and wisdom values that which is essentially beautiful you know, the same applies to I was reflecting recently about politics how people complain about the shallow politicians, but then they only elect politicians if they're good-looking. Politicians these days have to be photogenic before they're even considered as viable. Well, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I think it's true enough you know, that we, we have these values based on form, addiction to form, attachment to form. We get lost in the forms, but we forget to inspect the spirit behind the form. To do that, to inspect the spirit behind the form, we've got to be willing to question our assumptions. We've got to be actually willing to, to doubt. And that's not something that comes easy. If we're still committed to our deluded personality, 
deluded ego, all it really likes to do is control. It loves controlling. Anybody who says that they don't love control and don't love power is really deluded. All egos love power and love control. That's all they do. Now, hopefully it's the case that that uh, you know, we have some perspective on this and so we realise that this fascination or fondness for control and power is not something to totally believe in, but there is that aspect of our minds that we love having control and it shows up when uncertainty is thrust in front of us. But when that happens, you want to learn from it. Recently, well, in fact, this morning, I was speaking with the community here that uh, we're about to go on a three-month retreat, and and uh, people have been asking, say, well, what's the schedule? You know, what are we going to be doing? How is it going to be structured? And you know, quite a few people, like most people, almost everybody in the community has been asking, how is it going to be structured? And so I decided I wouldn't tell anybody how it's going to be structured because what I could hear behind this, which I understand, I mean, I'm just the same, it's not like <laughs> I'm any different, but the idea of wanting, always wanting to be sure. But can we ever be sure? Can we really be sure? We get addicted to wanting to be sure. But we can't be sure. We can't be sure about the future. Actually, in truth, it's uncertain. And, and yet, if we don't stop and get quiet enough and reflective enough to inspect the assumptions that we have about reality, then the chances are, sadly, we're going to be driven by the conditioned assumptions that we have. Like, we should know. If you're together, you should feel confident. You should feel sure. You should know what you're doing. Well, this is one of the benefits of uh, formal meditation practice. And, and learn to slow down and hopefully quieten down the thinking and get to appreciate silence. And you realize that we really don't know very much at all. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, in the beginning, it can come as quite a shock. And it contradicts a lot of our conditioning. But if we're skilled enough, and and it does take also takes patience and humility to recognize that this is how it is. But this is not all there is. This is what the in Buddhist teachings we have this convention of going for refuge. As a Buddhist, I go for refuge to the Buddha. I go for refuge to the Dhamma. I go for refuge to the Sangha. And what is it we're actually going for refuge to? What is it that we're committing our lives to? What is it that we're orienting our hearts towards when we say the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha? Well, I can assure you it's not this piece of bronze up here. Beautiful as it is, that's a symbol for the Buddha. That's not the Buddha. That's absolutely not the Buddha. The Taliban can come and blow it up and it doesn't make any difference to the Buddha at all. Not an iota of difference. The Taliban can't touch the Buddha. You know, that's just a symbol for the Buddha. That what the Buddha is, is consciousness that's freed from the distortions of greed, aversion and delusion. Our consciousness, this consciousness that we live out of, this capacity for knowing that we have, 
when it's completely free from greed, aversion and delusion, then that's the Buddha consciousness. Well, it's not the Samasam Buddha, but it, it's the same consciousness in as much as it's not distorted. There's wisdom and compassion manifest naturally, selflessly. And so that's the Buddha that we go for refuge to. We're going for refuge to an edgeless awareness that is able to accommodate any condition, any experience, any degree of intensity that may come to us can be accommodated by the Buddha's consciousness because there's no edges, there's no limitation. Why are there no edges? Why are there no limitations? Because there's no clinging. Now, we all have habits of clinging, which we call deluded ego, deluded personality, and thereby impose limitations on consciousness. And so we keep over and over again having this experience of, I can't take it anymore. But that's not reality that can't take it. That's consciousness with limitations imposed by us on it that can't take it. So what we do when we say, I go for refuge to the Buddha, is we're saying, I go for refuge to that potential, that capacity, that, that limitless awareness that's able to see all conditions as they are and accord with them with wisdom and compassion. And so as a ritual, we bow down to the Buddha and we say, I go for refuge to the Buddha. That's the form. And if we don't stop and inspect the four, we might think, well, these weird Buddhists, that's pretty primitive, you know, giving away all their power to, to some imagined external reality. But that's not. That's just the way that it looks like to the material, the physical eye. Yeah. But the truth is, if we're doing it in the way that the Buddha taught, paying respect to the Buddha is not paying respect to the form. It's paying respect to the spirit, to the truth, to the reality of the Buddha. There's that uh, story in the scriptures which I've often mentioned of that young monk who was sitting staring at the Buddha because apparently the Buddha was stunningly good looking and, and this young monk was just sitting there staring at him, delighting at the beauty of the Buddha. And the Buddha scolded him and said, you're looking at the wrong thing. You know, the beauty of the form of the Buddha is not what you should be adoring and delighting in, but the beauty of the Dhamma taught by the Buddha. So this takes training and it's not going to come easily and we all have obstructions and if we don't have adequate spiritual education, then again the, when the obstructions arise, we can misperceive them. We just see, oh, I'm obstructed. I always find it a, a really really sad thing to hear people talking about their mind as if it's a fixed thing you know, like I'm just like that you know that um, you know we can all develop all of us at any stage of life you know we can all develop and whatever obstructions we might come across are things to learn from yeah. again however intense however entangled however difficult these apparent obstructions might be, to the uneducated, deluded personality, they look like something that's stopping me from getting what I want, which is peace of mind and contentment. But from a dumber perspective, they say, well, this is the place we need to go to learn. Again, saying the 
the materialistic consciousness just sees the way things appear to be. It sees the form and misses the opportunity. A few days ago there was a question asked about how much attention should we pay to our neurotic personality before we focus on letting go and developing transcendence. And I think this is a question that concerns a lot of people. That, yeah, you, know, you hear the spiritual teachings and about the possibility for limitless freedom and limitless wisdom, limitless compassion, unshakable well-being. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, that is really appealing. I love that. And so you go on a retreat and then you end up just being assailed by all sorts of neurotic, crazy, obsessive thoughts and crying buckets of tears and where the hell did all that come from? I thought that I was pretty cool character and and now you realise you just got this whole backlog of grief that you didn't even realise you had and and am I supposed to turn around and look at this unlived life or am I supposed to just bang away at my meditation object and and I crack the jhanas and then realise liberation you know which one am I supposed to do? I don't know. You drive yourself crazy. Well, I just go to the pub and eat the pizza. That's unfortunate. That's, that's, that's what you do when you've had a bad education. You don't realize that this is a really important question. How much effort should we put into dealing with the apparent obstructions of mind and how much should we put into just letting go? Well, the amount of effort we should make is the right amount. That's the amount of effort we should make. But how do we know the right amount? How do we know the right amount of effort to make? How, much, how do we know the right amount of attention to pay to our neurosis before we stop paying attention to the, this deluded, inadequate, crazy personality of mine and just practice dropping everything? How do we know the right amount? If we just ask our heads and we spend all our time reading books and trying to get information, we're almost certainly not going to find out. Well, this is the importance of, of meditation, learning how to engage our inner potential, our spiritual faculties. You know, the spiritual faculties, just as we've got the physical faculties of seeing, he- seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching, and this is how we get around in the world, If these faculties are sufficiently well-tuned, then we move through the world without banging into too many things and hurting ourselves and hurting other people. Well, the inner spiritual faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and discernment similarly need to be well enough balanced if we want to live our lives without going around causing ourselves and others suffering. But if we haven't had these faculties pointed out to us and what it's like when they're out of balance, well, maybe we can go through our whole life without learning how to engage them mindfully, effectively. And, And so a question like, what is the right amount of attention to pay to my neurotic personality before I decide to just drop the whole kit and caboodle? How do we address that question? Well, it depends on how well-tuned the spiritual faculties are. We can't know the right amount if we don't know how to engage the faculty of trust. 
We can't know the right amount if we don't know how to engage the faculty of, of energy. We can't know the right amount if we don't know how to engage the faculty of mindfulness, of concentration, of discernment. These faculties need to be adequately honed down, and when they are, then we can use them, we can engage with them. And, and so it is often the case, particularly in our society these days, I would suggest that because of, well, there's various causes, fragmented society, mobility, lack of predictability and stability during the early years, all of these conditions contribute to fragmented personality. And so we don't even have a sufficient, good enough personality to be able to trust. Some people have been so damaged in their early life that the faculty, the capacity for trusting has been damaged. And if that's the case, then yes, I would say, yeah, give yourself whatever you need to work on that. If it needs time, if you need to study more, if you need to consult, if you need therapy, physical therapy, talking therapy, until you learn how to trust again. Yeah. Or energy. Some people, for some people, it's, it's when intensity, any degree of intensity, and it's like their, contain, their container starts to shake and crack. And certainly in the spiritual life and the path of transformation, we do need intensity. Yeah, the the raw, wild, undeveloped heart is not we don't get rid of this wild energy, the energy is transformed. You know, it's not like we get rid of all this bad energy and get some new good stuff. You know, but this wild energy that we experience is anger and greed and fear and so we meet it, we contemplate it, we meet it with the spiritual faculties and investigate it and, and in so doing it's purified. The energy is purified. The Buddha gave the image of light consciousness as like purifying gold. You heat it up and then the dross comes to the surface and you scoop it off and then you've got the pure gold. So it is with consciousness. It takes heat, it takes pressure, it takes energy. When we sit still in meditation longer than we want to and we keep moral precepts stricter than we want to. This going against the momentum of my way, it builds up energy, tremendous energy. Anybody who's done it for any length of time knows what it's like to be sweating and heart pumping and and desperately wanting to get away from what? From sitting there doing nothing? <laughs> well, <laughs> we're not actually doing nothing, we're purifying consciousness. And so it takes intensity. Well, for many of us, sadly, the kind of early life that we had was not good enough. There wasn't good enough stability. And, and so the, the person didn't develop adequately. And so there isn't a sense of self-respect and, and containment so that when the intensity builds up, we can hold it. We can stay with it. Yeah. Uh, as I said, cracks appear. And so if that's the case, well, then you don't want to be engaging in transformative, intense practices. You want to step back. You know, learn how to relax. Learn how to take it easy. Learn how to respect yourself. Learn how to take care of yourself. Learn how to be kind to yourself and, and heal. 
the container because we need a very strong, reliable, dependable sense of self-respect before we can meet intensity. And similarly with the other spiritual faculties, with mindfulness, with concentration, with discernment. If we haven't had a good enough upbringing, then these spiritual faculties are not simply available to us. It's just the same as somebody doesn't get brought up with a good enough diet, no vitamin B in their diet, and the nervous system doesn't develop properly. It doesn't matter. They reach 20 years old and you you wonder why they're not uh, very clever. Well, the nervous system never developed. The nervous system takes a good diet to develop. Well, so it is with the spiritual path. There are stages of development that we need to go through. And if we miss some of those stages, then when we're faced with the question of, of what is a good enough level of attention to pay to my neurotic personality before I drop it and stop paying attention to it, we can't meet that question. We don't have the equipment, we don't have the tools, we don't know how to, we don't know how to listen to that question, we don't know how to receive it as a whole body-mind and engage our informed intuitive awareness and wait for an answer to emerge. We don't know how to do that, we don't have the equipment. So if that's the case, well then, that's right, we stop and turn to these faculties and develop them. So the um, contemplation that I started off with this evening about uh, Ajahn Chah's teaching on uh, not trying to attain anything, not seeking rebirth into another state of being, um, not practicing wanting something in exchange. That's true at a certain stage. That quote of Ajahn Chah's teaching, it's taken out of context. For somebody else, that's not true. To tell somebody who hasn't even really gotten started on the spiritual path that they shouldn't try to attain anything, that's not true, that's not appropriate. And I can tell you, Ajahn Chah wouldn't have said that. He's saying that for somebody who's already gotten themselves adequately established on the spiritual path. There's a, a story recorded where he points out that people have been criticizing him because he seems to give conflicting advice. Um, One day somebody comes to see him and says, what should I do in this situation? He says, oh, you should do that. And the next day somebody else comes to see him and asks the same question, what should I do in this situation? And Ajahn Chah says, oh, you should do this. And he gives totally contradictory advice. And he said, and somebody, as I said, was criticizing him for this. He says, you're not consistent. And he says, well, he says, for me, it's like being down the end of a road and I see somebody coming towards me. And if they're going off to the left, I say, go right. If they're going off to the right, I say, go left. To me, I'm saying the same thing to these people. To you, it sounds different. Now, if we don't know how to discern the spirit behind the forms of the teachings, they often appear contradictory. And so it takes a lot of patience, a lot of care, and a lot of sensitivity to be careful that we're not fooled by the way things appear to be. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm